1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 to 14. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Right. Well, t- as Robin just said, today is the final instalment on our series in, in on one Peter, and today's Bible reading it, it's part summary and it's part conclusion of what Peter's been teaching us all the way through this letter. And the title that I've given today's message is "The Church in a State of Readiness." The whole context of First Peter is he's writing to Christians who are suffering. Um, and particularly they're suffering persecution, and it's about to get a whole lot worse for them. Uh, But even when we're not going through severe persecution, it's still normal for disciples of Jesus to suffer and to suffer for the sake of their Lord. Rejection and abuse, it's pretty much par for the course of having a normal experience of being a Christian in, in the world. This present reality of suffering, rejection, abuse is only for a little while. Back in chapter 4, verse 7, he said, The end of all things is at hand. And he reminds us this again today, that, that suffering only goes on for a little while until Jesus returns. And wow, what a blessing we're in for when Jesus returns. So he sums up how... For this little while, we live in readiness. Uh, By the way, when when he uses that phrase, for a little while, uh, it can mean our whole lives. uh, Because what is a lifetime compared to eternity? It's, It's but a moment. So, number one, living with the expectation of the return of Jesus is a life of humility. And we touched on this last time I did the message a couple of weeks ago. Uh, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
And Peter would have had to have understood this really well because Peter and the other disciples just had it drilled into them by Jesus over and over and over again. If you, you think about the example that Jesus gave of when you go to a banquet, don't go and sit yourself at the head of the table because the host will say, what are you doing here? You get, get back down there with the plebs. You don't belong up here. There's somebody more important than you. Whereas if you go and sit down at the bottom of the table, he'll come along and say, Oh, golly, you shouldn't be down here. Come up, come up with me to the head of the table. And then there was the time the disciples were arguing amongst themselves which one was the greatest. And what did Jesus say to them? Whichever one of you wants to be the greatest has to become the servant of all. And then there was the example of Christ himself. He is the Lord. He is the master. And yet he took the place of the most humble servant. And he washed the feet of his disciples. But, but now he's been exalted to the highest place. And so verse 6 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Right? This is basic discipleship 101. We humble ourselves and we humble ourselves amongst each other as a church, but even out in the world, we humble ourselves amongst other people. And even when the world's got it in for us, and even if we're being persecuted for the name of Jesus, now, by worldly standards, it, it's very much drummed into us, isn't it? You've got to stand up for yourself. You don't take any rubbish from anybody. Now, that's the way of the world, and that's the way that it's, we've learned but it's not the way of Jesus. Imagine if Jesus stood up for himself when he was being unjustly accused and tried. If Jesus stood up for himself when they tried to send him to the cross, he would have never been crucified and he would have never saved the world. And so he humbled himself, even to the state of death. And that's the way of the disciples of Jesus. We don't retaliate. We don't fight back. We humble ourselves. Even if we're being persecuted, we don't fight back. And so we humble ourselves, maybe even to the point of death. And that's okay, because at the proper time, when's this proper time? Well, it's when Jesus returns. So at the proper time, he may exalt you. Which brings us to the second point dealing with anxiety in such troubling times. Now, Peter's already said to these guys, don't you think for a moment that something strange is happening to you when the troubles begin, right? So don't go thinking, well, this shouldn't be happening. And he's told us that it's sometimes God's will for us to suffer and that it's normal for Christians to suffer. You see, that's what, that's what the sovereignty of God is about. And some people can't accept this, that, oh, no, no, it couldn't ever be God's will for us to suffer. But the thing is, God doesn't have to act in the way that I want him to act. And God doesn't always act in the way that I expect him to act. Because God is king, because God is sovereign. He has his own mind and his mind is perfect. And, and if I can't understand what God is doing and if I don't think it right, it's right, guess who doesn't understand? It's not God. It's me that doesn't understand. You see, as we humble ourselves and as we go through troubled times and, and even go through persecution and suffering, 
Peter reminds us that we are under God's mighty hand. Right? When we suffer, no matter what sort of suffering it is, we have to understand that we're not suffering without God's permission. Right? God is still in control. And so Peter says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Do we believe this? Do we believe that God is completely in control? Well, too right he is. Do we believe that God cares for us? Well, too right he does. That, that was settled once and for all at the cross. And so we have no reason to be anxious. Um, if we are under the mighty hand of God, and if God cares for us, then we can trust him. And whenever anxiety does start to get a bit of a foothold in your life, how can we counteract that anxiety? We need to remind ourselves that we are under God's mighty hand. We need to remind ourselves that he cares for us. And so we can praise God, Lord, Lord, you've got this. And so I'm not going to be anxious because you've got this. I guess what it boils down to is how big is our faith in God? Now, I'm going to tell you something. A tiny little faith, that's the sort of faith that always wants God to remove all of our troubles. And that's the sort of faith that will stay strong when there are no troubles. Whereas the faith that God calls us to trusts in his mighty hand, even through some of the worst troubles and the worst situations in life that, that we could ever imagine. Next, be sober-minded. Uh, that simply means think clearly. And we already talked about this back in length, back in, back in chapter 4. Um, as we approach the end, think clearly so that we can pray clearly. And if everybody else gets into a panic when things strange things start happening in the world, we shouldn't panic. We have no reason to panic because we know that God's got everything in hand and we are under his mighty hand. Number four, as we wait for Christ to return, be watchful. Now, it seems to me that there's two elements to watchfulness. Jesus told, told a lot of parables about being watchful, didn't he? Um, about being ready for his return. And there were two main messages in these. One is keep the faith. Uh, don't let the fact that Jesus has been a long time coming ever be a cause to, for us to let our faith slide. And here I think Peter's also telling us, don't let the threat of persecution be something that deters us from being faithful followers of Jesus. And the second type of watchfulness, when he says to keep watch, is about watching out for distractions. It's about watching out for diversions. And all through Christ's teachings and through the, the letters in the New Testament, we read warnings to watch out for false Christs, watch out for false prophets, watch out for false gospels and for false teachers. And Peter launches right into this when he says, watch out for the devil. Well, actually, he says, resist the devil. 
So he says, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Now, I reckon one of the greatest tricks that the devil ever came up with is to get people to stop believing that he exists. Um, and sometimes even those who do believe he exists just picture him as some kind of silly cartoon image of what Satan is like, and that he's all fun and part of a funny joke. But the thing is, to Christians, the devil is no joke. He's our adversary. And let me be really clear about this. The devil's target isn't so much the unsaved. He's already got them. His target is the disciples of Jesus. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but whenever somebody becomes a Christian or whenever somebody takes a, a new stand for Jesus, like getting baptised into his name, whenever something like that happens, straight away they seem to run into more troubles in their life. And do you know why? It's because they have a new adversary. They have a new enemy an enemy that they didn't used to have. The devil is our adversary. And he's not a cartoon character. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, resist him. But how can we do that? How can we resist the devil? I mean, you might say, to me, but hang on, Michael, we're just humans. And he's some kind of powerful spiritual being. But let's not forget that we are under the mighty hand of God. And the Lord our God, he's already defeated Satan. He's much more powerful than Satan. Now, to resist the devil, I think in some ways we need to actually understand a little bit about what's he trying to achieve. Here, Peter shows us that the devil is the one who's behind persecution. Now, there's no surprises there. Uh, that the devil's behind persecution. It, it, it's him that we resist as we go through persecution. But what's his purpose with persecution? Is he wanting to kill all of the Christians? Well, I don't think that would do him a whole lot of good because whenever a disciple of Jesus loses their life for Jesus, they go straight to be with the Lord and they are exalted immediately. And the devil loses. Because when a disciple of Jesus remains faithful to Jesus right unto death, that glorifies God. And the devil hates it. I suspect that what Satan is trying to do is to make us so fear for our lives that we turn away from Jesus. But it sort of backfires on him. Because sure, when under the threat of persecution, somebody who started out following Jesus um, falls away, the devil's achieved his goal. But when despite rejection, abuse, and the threat of prison and torture, one of Jesus' little children continues to witness for their Lord, God is glorified. How serious are we for Jesus? 
As we've been working our way through this first letter of Peter, we've been confronted with this all the way through as he puts forward the way that we live under persecution, how serious am I for Jesus? If as we've been studying this, you, you haven't been asking yourself this question, you haven't understood First Peter, how serious am I for Jesus? How serious am I about following him? How serious am I about witnessing for him even when the ridicule comes, even when the rejection comes, even when the abuse comes, and perhaps in the future, even when the jail comes, and even when the ax comes. Uh, I remember a story getting told of a young man who was declaring his love for his woman, and over the telephone he expressed his feelings, oh my darling, I love you so much. I would cross the desert to be with you. I would swim a flooded river to be with you. And she said, oh honey, so wonderful. Come and, come and visit me tonight. And he goes, how about tomorrow night? It's raining at the moment. Now, how serious are we for Jesus? We sing songs about eternity. We sing songs about setting our hearts on eternity and, and about, we sing songs about Jesus and we tell him how much we love him and, and we pray prayers of commitment and I will follow you, Jesus, to the ends of the earth. But when the chips are down, how serious are we really for Jesus? We resist the devil with firm faith, never shifting, always trusting, always following. In Revelation chapter 12, we get a, get a picture of what's going on in the spiritual realm. It says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Do we understand this? The devil's aim is to use persecutions and even the threat of death to try and get us to lose our faith and to stop following Jesus. And we conquer him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. In other words, we conquer him by holding on to our faith and by being witnesses for Jesus. By not just, not just keeping it to ourselves, but the word of our testimony is keep sharing the word of Jesus. That's how we conquer the devil. And by loving him, by loving God, more than what we love our physical lives. Is our love for Jesus and is our commitment to Jesus merely a song lyric or may, merely a, an expression that actually doesn't have any action to it? Or is our love for Jesus and commitment to Jesus something that's fair income? Number six, we're not alone. Yep, we already talked about this. We, we are under God's mighty hand, but it goes further than this. Peter reminds his readers that the church across the world, the brotherhood he calls them across the world, also suffer the same kinds of things. 
And I don't know why, but it does. It helps. It helps to know that when we're suffering, that we're not the only ones suffering. Um, you often hear people, even people of the world say, oh, yeah, things are pretty good, bad, but other people have got it worse. But it, it's not just a platitude. This, this is something which connects us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, suffering for the sake of Christ is something that happens across the world. And our brothers and sisters in Christ endure the same troubles as what we do and often much worse. And Peter says, that's an encouragement to you right there. Others are continuing to be witnesses for Jesus and you can too. And so we come to the glorious conclusion, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What an amazing thing the grace of God is. The God of all grace has called us to eternal glory in Christ. For, for, for a little while, it might seem like the devil's getting the upper hand, but things are not as they seem. He himself, our God of all grace, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish who? You and me. He does this for those whom he has called. When Jesus Christ comes in his kingdom with all of his glory, we're going to be a part of that. Now, if I'd said that in some churches, the whole church would yell out, Hallelujah! Let's, let's try that again. Let, let's see how enthusiastic we are about this. Uh, when Jesus Christ comes in all of his glory, we're going to be a part of it. Whew! I was, I was a bit worried there for a little while. <laughs> Hallelujah. No matter how much the world would try to tear down the followers of Jesus, he will restore us. No matter how much people might try to mock and belittle and demean Christians, our Lord will confirm us. No matter how, how much Satan tries to attack us and weaken us, the Lord will strengthen us. And no matter how much anybody tries to tear us or our Lord down and erase his children, our Lord will establish us. That's the God of all grace and what a blessing that is. How can we respond to a blessing like that? Well, the same way Peter did, with worship. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, Jesus told us to worship him in spirit and in truth. And I've, I've racked my brains at times. Like, worship is something which can seem so foreign to us in our culture. Like, who else worships? Well... Some people worship their footy team. Some sports people get worshipped. Uh, some rock stars get worshipped. 
Some movie stars get worshipped. But all of what's getting projected in all of those things is most of the time a false image. And it's a false sort of worship. But when it comes to worshipping God, it's a statement of fact. To him be dominion forever and ever. That means that God is sovereign. God is king. God is ruler. Now, for now, he allows the devil to be the ruler of this world. But Satan does not have dominion over us. And we look forward to the day when Satan and his evil minions will be cast into the lake of fire and his rule will come to a complete and utter end. But to our Lord, his dominion will last forever and ever and ever. This is the true grace of God. I always find it hard preaching on, teaching on the end of, of a letter because they, they sort of jump, 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 jump. And um, it's like they're, they're wrapping up the letter now um, and he says a few pleasantries. Uh, it, it seems like Silvanus was his scribe, so basically good job, Silvanus. But even again, he then says again, this is the true grace of God. What is the true grace of God? Well, what he's been talking about all through his letter and what he's been talking about in his summary, to suffer for Christ, to continue being witnesses for Christ, to be humble, and then to receive the glorious reward at his coming. This is the true grace of God. And this is what he's been teaching us right through this letter. Now, we've become a culture who in pretty much everything, we want immediate gratification. We live on the credit card, many of us. Oh, I want this thing now, I can't afford it. That's okay, I'll put it on the card. We want this immediate gratification. It's the same with, same with the, the gospel that gets preached today. It's very much about an immediate gratification. I want all of the blessings and I want them now. But Peter's been showing us all the way through that, that, that this is the true grace of God. We go through troubles now. We suffer now. We be witnesses for Christ now. We be humble now and we receive the glorious reward at his coming. This is the true grace of God. It makes you think, doesn't it? I wonder what the fake grace of God is. Well, that's what I just described to you. That fake grace of God is that which wants immediate gratification now. It's that gospel that tells you that you don't ever have to suffer and you don't have to have to go through hardship or persecution. It's any gospel that appeals to our worldly temporal desires instead of fixing our hearts on eternity. But this is the true grace of God and this is what Peter is really keen, that we stand firm in this. Verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings and so does Mark, my son. Uh, the, the early church referred to Rome as Babylon. Now, that might seem a bit strange to us, but... The reason they did that is because Babylon, when they look back in, into Israel's history, 
it was Babylon who had conquered Jerusalem. They'd sacked Jerusalem and they'd taken the people out of Jerusalem as exiles and made them into slaves at Babylon, right? So that Babylon was a superpower that had persecuted God's people. And so that should help us to understand why they then referred to Rome as Babylon. Uh, this is why we believe Peter was in Rome, by the way, when he wrote this letter. And he was in Rome still when he was executed sometime after he wrote his second letter. Rome was a godless place. It was the stem of Nero's persecutions. It was the place where Christians were being burned as garden lighting. It's the place where Christians were being fed to the lions. And it's a place from which the hatred of Christians was spread to right across the whole empire. Hello down there. <laughs> And then when he says, when he refers to she who is in Babylon, he's referring to the Christian church who are there, the Christian church who are in Rome. So just as we, we refer to as a ship, as a she, uh, we, we refer to the church as a she. And if you're a bloke, just get over it, okay? Um, and why wouldn't we do that? Because the church, the image of the church is as the bride of Christ. And so the church in Rome... The chosen of God send their greetings, as does Mark, who wasn't Paul's literal son, but he was a son in the faith. Verse 14. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And that's the end of the letter. I didn't see any of you kissing. I'm not going to use my standard joke. Robin's wondering if I'm going to use my standard joke. You're probably all sick of it by now. Uh, if you don't know the standard joke, you can ask me later. Um, but these words at the end, they're not meaningless pleasantries. Greet one another with a kiss of love simply means love each other like family. Right? You might give a family member a kiss when you greet them. In our culture, we don't kiss many people. Some other cultures, they kiss everyone. Um, I don't know what you're supposed to do with COVID, but anyway, we're not going to do, we're not going to elbow bump. That's too corny. Um, but peace isn't wishful thinking. Peace is for those who are in Christ. Now, how do you handle a message like what we got today or how did you handle some of the message as, messages as we went through um, that letter of First Peter? Did you go through periods of unease and distress? Maybe you did. In fact, a couple of people have said to me that, oh, I don't really want to think about those things. I, I, there's too much violence there. And one day when I talked about the persecutions that the church was going through. And I think, Doug, you might have said to me, you didn't... Oh, I don't like to think about that sort of violence. Um, it should, should have an R rating on it. But how do, how do you handle when we talk about these sorts of things? Did you come out on the other side? You see, this has been Peter's purpose, to help us to understand what happens in the world to Christians and to help us get past the anxiety 
and to get past the unease and to get past the distress and to fix our eyes on the true grace that we are under the hand of God and God's got this. And so don't be anxious. Don't be distressed. God's got this, which is why he could say, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you, knowing that even though we may be humbled through trials and troubles and persecutions, we know you've got this. And we know that you will help us to continue being witnesses for Christ. Lord, we long for the day of your return. And so help us to be watchful, that we would be eagerly awaiting you and that we would be watching out for the devil and his evil schemes. Lord, again, we pray for the brotherhood. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who suffer for your name's sake. Lord, give them strength. Give them peace. Give them hope and help them to be witnesses for you. And this is our prayer for ourselves also, that you would give us strength, that you would give us peace, that you would give us hope, and that we would be encouraged knowing that the brotherhood across the world are remaining true to you under your mighty hand. And Lord, we pray that we would be active witnesses for you. To the Lord our God be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.